Well, good morning, church. <laughs> Every time. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, as we continue in our series, Unexpected, um, Unexpected Jesus. Certainly unexpected this morning. Um, and while, while you get there, I want to tell you about, I was gone all of last week, um, and so I knew I, knew I was going to preach on Sunday, and I was gone all of last week. I was back in my hometown for a wedding, and so I would wake up early every day, and I would go to this, this coffee shop that I really love. And I'm sure many of you who have moved away from the city you grew up in have experienced this, probably to a greater degree um, than I did. But, you know, I've, I've, last time I was probably there was last Christmas or something. But So I get there, this, co- this coffee shop I know and I love, and I, I'd been there many, many years, many times. And I go in there, and I'm standing in line, and there's this mural behind the, 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 the counter. And I was like, that's new. I was like, I don't recognize that. I don't know if I like that. But then probably the ultimate heartbreak at the coffee shop was that I opened my laptop, and for years, I mean four, five, six years, I would always auto-connect to the Wi-Fi. My, my, my computer had memorized the password, and I would always auto-connect, and I opened my laptop, and I tried to go to a website, and it said, not connected to the internet. And I had to go, and I had to ask the barista, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? And so this place that, had, that I was once so familiar with had, had now changed, but the, this was the worst part, is that when I was in college, there was this Thai food restaurant called Chop Chop. And where Chop Chop was... And this, this was, it was so cool. It was really close to campus. So you could, you could order on your phone and they would get in a golf cart and they would drive in a golf cart and they'd give you your food anywhere on campus. It was the best. So if you're in the library, which I was a lot, I was in the library a lot studying. Um, if you're in your dorm, if I was in the theater or whatever, they'd, they'd, they'd come and they'd bring it to me. It was great. So I go and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get some chop chop. Gone. Is a new restaurant called Bucks, Buffs. And they don't serve Thai food. They serve like good old country cooking, which my small town already has like three of those restaurants. And I was like, where's the, where's the good Thai food? I, I needed it. And so I went in, we went in and I was all, everything was different. The chairs were set up different. The counter, the, the cash register was in a different spot. And, you know, everyone in there was, it didn't smell like it used to. It didn't look like it used to. And I just, I wanted to tear the whole thing down. I was like, this is wrong. This is not right. This is not what it's supposed to be. This is chop chop. This is not buffs. You're supposed to deliver me my Thai food. It was wrong. I knew what the place was supposed to be. And it was not that thing. They'd changed it. They'd morphed it. And I didn't like the change. And so today, in our story, we're going to see a, a similar thing. Jesus is going to have a bit of a homecoming, and he is not going to like what he sees. And it's not just the lack of a Thai food restaurant or a new mural. No, he sees that the very presence of God is being used and abused. And he goes to extreme measures to fix it. He goes to almost violent ends to make it right. So read with me, if you will. John chapter 2, or yeah, John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. Apostle John says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father God, your words are true. They are powerful. So as we look at your word today, your spoken word, as we study it, seek its meaning, God, I pray that you show us the real Jesus, who Jesus is, not who we think he is, not who we've been taught that he is, but let us see in this text who Jesus is, a new aspect of Jesus' character that we've never seen before, God, so that we might take that and make it our own, that we might look more like Jesus. God, I pray you give me boldness, give me grace. Do not let people hear my words, but rather let them hear yours, Father God. In your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So, this is a very easy week for me to fit with the theme, unexpected Jesus, right? Because we read this story and this is not something that we would expect uh, Jesus to do, right? It's, it's, you know, it's brutish. You know, some of us, I think we may, you know, kind of clutch our pearls or, or gasp when we read this story. It's, Jesus is a violent it's uncharacteristic. He gets angry and he throws these people out of the temple. And I, I want to caution us because this is a familiar text uh, to many people. It's one that's taught in Sunday school. And I'm sorry, I'm also sick, so I'm going to be drinking this water routinely. It's one that, you know, we've been taught, we've read multiple times. And I think we usually take one of two meanings. And I think those meanings are good to a degree, but I don't think that they are the actual meat of the text. They're not what it's about. So first, we usually think, oh, Jesus went to this temple and he got angry. That means I can get angry if I get angry about the right thing, right? Jesus has righteous anger. That gives me permission to have righteous anger, which, yes, that's true. Jesus does get angry, and there are things in this world that should make us angry, but we should not read biblical stories with Jesus and say, oh, that's me. I'm Jesus in the story. It's very unwise. It assumes a lot about us. The other thing we do is we read this and we say, oh, Jesus got mad at these people for making money, for, for money changing in the temple. There should be no commerce going on uh, in the house of God. Which I don't think is com completely, uh, completely correct because uh, culturally, if you understand the, the, the Passover, when we went to the temple, there was a tax that had to be paid. It was normal. And Jesus and his disciples, they went in, and they paid that tax with no, no problem. They, they entered the temple, and it was to, they were totally fine. Jesus does not make a whip when he pays the tax. But he threw the people out who were in the temple making a profit in the temple. So that, I think, is the focus of the text. It's not about righteous anger, and it's not about making money in the church. It's about the temple the place where God is meeting his people in a unique way and that they come in to worship. Jesus is not just mad at them for making money. He's angry because they are using, abusing even, 
the act of worship for their own personal gain. And when Jesus sees that, he comes onto the scene and he cleanses, he purges the impropriety. He makes God the center again. Jesus goes to extremes to refocus these men onto the worship of God, and he does the same in our hearts. He will go to extremes to refocus our hearts, to refocus our priorities. Jesus is the source and the focus of all worship, and he will not settle for anything less than that. Because think about this, the gospel plus anything else, the gospel plus money, the gospel plus me, the gospel plus politics, the gospel plus anything is less than the gospel. When we add our own preferences or our own distractions or our own self-interest to the gospel, we are diluting it and that is unacceptable to God. He doesn't just calmly ask us to change. He doesn't just shrug us off or give up on us. He pursues our hearts radically in a big way. He makes whips and he flips our tables to reorient our hearts towards himself. So here at the beginning of our text, John gives some some small detail that that clue us into some really important aspects of this text. So so let's look at just, I mean, the first phrase, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So Passover, I'm sure a lot of us know, is the celebration of the the last plague uh, in the Exodus story, right? So the angel of death is coming over all of Egypt, and the Israelites were told, if you take the blood of an innocent lamb and you mark it over your doorpost, you will be saved, you will be spared, will pass over them. And many of them do that, and many of them are faithful and obedient to God, and they are saved. And ever since then, every year, they mark that day. It becomes a major holiday. It's a day of remembrance. They look back, and they think, God was so faithful to us then. Won't he be faithful to us again? They hope, and they pray that God will continue to deliver them from the evil in their hearts. So every Passover, every Passover, Anyone who followed Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, they would come to Jerusalem as a pilgrimage, and they would come to Jerusalem, they would come to this temple, and they would make a sacrifice. So we know from the beginning of this passage, from the Passover, the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He's not the only one. There are hundreds of thousands of other people coming up to the temple that day from all over the world, and they're going there to make sacrifices, and and Jesus and the disciples are being obedient, and they're going as well. And so when we get to verse 14, we get to the real event that was setting, and then here's the event in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we have to get a few things straight because there's a lot, of, a, a lot kind of culturally going on here, right? They're selling stuff. There's money changers. I'm not even really sure I know what that meant until I had to prepare for this. I think I really just thought they were giving out loans, but that's not at all what's happening. Um, but first, this, what we see in this text is totally normal. Totally expected at Passover weekend. There would be people selling, uh, selling oxen, selling sheep, selling birds uh, to be sacrificed. Because these people are traveling from thousands of miles away and they can't bring an oxen with them. They can't bring uh, a pigeon. They can't bring uh, you know, their own sheep. So they could go to, into the temple and they could buy one. It was, it was routinely done. And the money changers are, are exchangers, really. So we talked about how they had to pay that tax. Well, it had to be paid in the correct currency, but there's people coming from all over the world where there's all these different coins. And so they go to these money changers and they make an exchange with them to get the correct currency. So then they can make 
uh, they can make, they can pay their tax. It's, it's routine, it's normal. This is not something that Jesus would not know was happening. He would have seen this done every year. But then the other thing I, I wanna be sure that we don't do is get this mixed up with another temple story of a temple cleansing in the book of Matthew. Now there are two distinct events. There are two temple cleansings. And in, in Matthew, God specifically calls out the, the men who are selling and changing money for charging too much. He calls them a den of robbers. He's, he's distinctly focused in on how much money they are making, but that is not the case here. We don't see any proof that Jesus is concerned about the money that they are making. It's the very action itself. The very action of turning the temple into a market that makes Jesus do what he does. Because when the worship of God becomes an avenue for greed, God is angry. There were men inside the place that was set apart for the worship of God, and they had turned it into their business. They were directly profiting off the faithful practice of God's people, the faithful obedience of those coming into the temple. They saw them lined up, and they saw dollar signs. They said, what a perfect time for me to line my pockets. It would be as if every time we baptize someone, we'd say, yeah, but we charge for that. you got to pay Brent a couple extra dollars to baptize you. We say, now, to be an obedient follower of Christ, you, you need to be baptized, but you also have to pay our pastor to baptize you. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. Why would we say, hey, you have to do this, and also, I'm going to make money off of it? We don't use people's obedience for our own gain. Our gain from seeing faithful obedience in the church is the seeing of the faithful obedience. That is the reward. Seeing God's people be faithful in obedience is a reward enough for us. Now, in 2019, we look around and we see this very prevalently. You can turn on the TV, you can read the news. There are hundreds and thousands of people that have fallen for the lie that God's love is shown through money. Pay us this much, you give our church this much, we'll give you this much in return. Or hey, if you buy this special towel or you buy this special cloth, then you will be healed. That'll heal uh, your family member if you pray with this water and this towel. Or, or maybe you've heard, hey, give me money and I can buy a private jet, and I can take the gospel all over the world. Those are lies. It should break our hearts when we see people use the faithful obedience of God's people to line their pockets. When God sees this, his heart burns with anger, and ours should too. They're taking advantage of obedience. Consumerism has taken over. What we can get is our focus of our worship. What does this get me? When people use obedience to God and the gospel, they, when they twist the gospel to fit their own financial plans or their political purposes, we know what Jesus wants to do to them. We see it right here. He wants to flip their tables. He wants to run them out with a whip. He wants to cleanse their ministries. He hates it when people manipulate his word and his people for their own gain. But I think we can sit here and we can think, those sound so far out there. 
Brian, I don't believe in this pay to pray or these healings or any of that. That's not us. Tell me if, tell me if this sounds familiar, if you've heard this before. I just didn't get that much out of service. Or it just, it just didn't make me feel like worshiping. I didn't really, didn't really like the preaching. Church, if you leave the gathering of God's people and you evaluate how you feel or what you have personally gained, then you are a consumer, not a worshiper. And if we are a church that just caters to ourselves and what we want and what we need more than we invite others in, then we have become the moneylenders in the story. We are the ones saying, jump through my hoops. Make me feel good. Make me feel comfortable. I was once doing a a youth event back in Texas, and my brother, who's a worship leader in Austin, he was leading worship uh, for the church that we had all grown up in on a Sunday morning. And, um, you know, so they played on Sunday morning. It was great, and they did really well. And, you know, small Baptist, Southern Baptist church, they were like, well, the band is going to be up here up front, and you can all come you know, come thank them, shake their hands one by one. And so, you know, these people are going down, yeah, thank you, it's great service. You know, really appreciate you guys being here. You've grown up so much. And this one woman comes up to my brother, who's the worship leader, and she shakes his hand and she says, I'm sorry, I just, I just couldn't focus on worship because of the eagle. And I'm sure all of you just had the same reaction my brother had, and he went, the eagle? What are you talking about? She gestured up to the the corner of our stage and there was an American flag on the stage and a topper that was an eagle and it was facing that way, facing away from the audience and it should have been facing forwards. She said, I couldn't focus because that American flag topper was facing the wrong way. Church, that is idolatry. When we go out of our way to make sure that the church caters to our preferences, our political positions, our feelings, if we're more focused on lights or what songs we like or the volume of the worship or the type of preaching or the length of the sermon, that is idolatry and we are not worshiping God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when Jesus saw things like that in the church, it was not, let the little children come to me. No, it was macho man Randy Savage. The cream of the crop was coming. He was, oh yeah, he was flipping tables. He was getting people out. Jesus had to show them. He had to show them what personal gain in the church resulted in, and he had to do it boldly. He had to say, this is wrong, and that I, and only I, have the ability and the authority to change it and to make it right, and he was going to make it right. See, because it's not about the money and it's not about the oxen. It's about the orientation of our hearts. True worship, honest worship has no preference or ulterior motive. The youth had had to help me think of that word this morning. True worship is about Christ and Christ alone. What were the money changers bringing glory to? It wasn't God. He sacrificed the greatness of the name of God for a quick buck. They used his name to benefit themselves, and they did it in his house, his dwelling place, the temple. Throughout scripture, we see places 
where God dwells among his people in a unique way. Yes, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there are unique spots where God dwells with his people. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, he dwells with them in the garden. And then when they are ousted, uh, later on, he, he dwells in the tabernacle when the Israelites are wandering. And they, they put this tent up. And then eventually, when they build the temple, God dwells in the temple, in the, the center of the Holy of Holies. God is there. The temple of God is on earth. Though his throne is in heaven, his footstool is the temple. His presence is uniquely there. He was waiting. There was this curtain that would block off where God's presence was, and and he was just behind that curtain. There was nowhere else on earth that was comparable to this place. This temple was huge. This temple was elegant. And the Israelites knew that the God who had saved them on that Passover, who had delivered them from the wilderness, that he was in there. So it's understandable. Bye, Danica. I told her I wasn't going to call her out, but then I did. Bye, Mitchell and Savannah. Y'all have a good week. Love y'all. Sorry. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) understandable why these religious leaders were upset with Jesus. Look at, look at verse 18. The Jews said to him, what signs do you show for, for, what signs do you show us for doing these things? They're essentially saying, who do you think that you are? What authority can you treat our elegant, expensive temple this way? And Jesus gives one of those classic Jesus one-liners back. He always, he always, you know, when, he, when he's dealing with these religious elite, he always speaks in sort of this double meaning. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Which he might have well has said, the eagle. Because this meant nothing to the people that he was talking to. It doesn't make any sense to the Jews. They start looking around at this huge building that had built, been built hundreds of years ago, and it was, it was elegant, it was gorgeous. And they think, this guy is nuts. He doesn't know how much work and how much time and how much money went into this, and they let him know how crazy he is. They essentially say, if we look at what they say, they say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They might as well have said, Rome wasn't built in a day which before that was a thing yet, so maybe the temple wasn't built in three days, sort of morphed into the Rome wasn't built in a day thing. I'm not sure, but maybe. But unfortunately, that's all the conversation we get from John. We get the question, we get Jesus' answer, we get the Jews' response, and that's it. We don't get, we don't get what Jesus says back to that, and, and we, just, we just move on. And I think what Jesus is getting at, or what John is getting at here, is a theme that we will see throughout the entire book of John. The whole book is that the religious elite, those who think that they know the best, that they are the smartest, the highest of the high, all doubt Jesus. Numerous times throughout the book of John, we'll see that Jesus is trusted and believed by the least expected people by people that he shouldn't even be talking to, he shouldn't even be having lunch with, and that the most studied, the most learned, and usually men are the ones that doubt him. 
This is not just, uh, John is not just the story of the unexpected Jesus, but it's also the story of Jesus and his unexpected followers. But John does give us this little author's note after, after, verse, uh, after verse 19, or after verse 20, excuse me. And he says, but when he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. First off, spoiler alert. We're two chapters in and we know he's gonna die and be raised from the dead. So I hadn't got to the end. You just dropped it in there. So thanks, John. Why would he do that? But I think John puts this, puts this truth, this, this author's note in here for very distinct purposes, two distinct purposes. First, John is saying that Jesus is who he says he is. The Jewish leaders ask for a sign of authority and Jesus doesn't do a miracle right there. He doesn't, you know, make a rainbow or turn water into wine like he did last week. He doesn't give them an answer right then, but he promises an answer. He says, there will be a day when by his own power, he will raise himself up from the dead and prove that he has all authority on heaven and on earth. That he was the one. He proved that he was the one who could run them out of the temple because this was his home. This was the homecoming for Jesus. When he was seeing where people were worshiping God, the Father, in a sense, that was the closest to the presence to the Father that Jesus could ever be on earth. Get this, Jesus had lived for eternity. Eternity passed with the Father in perfection at his right hand. And then he chose to come to earth in this dinginess, this nastiness, this brokenness, this vanity. And what did he see? Even the places where people were nearest to God, they were breaking his laws. They were exploiting his people. He saw greed. He saw indulgence. He saw idolatry. And he knew more than anyone what it meant to be separated from the Father. And he saw people trying to worship and get access. And he saw people who couldn't care less. And it broke his heart and he didn't sit idly by. The, the father, he, he said, I will purge my Father's house. I will clean it. I will make it right so those who want to worship can worship. But Jesus doesn't just say, this is my Father's house. He also says that he is the temple. Which seems odd because the temple is not a person. It's a place. We think about what the temple was for. It was for God to dwell among his people and who is God or who is Jesus? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Christ on earth was the presence of God among his people and there was no separation. There was no tax to be paid. There was no sacrifice that you had to make. You could see him. You could touch him. You could talk to him. Jesus was the new and better temple. He was where God was dwelling with his people. And more than condemn those people who had abused the temple, Jesus was showing those around that a new way had come. God could not be just contained to a singular room at the center of a building where only a few people could enter. No, there was no distinction, no color, no creed, no class that was unable to come to God, to come and be saved. There was no need for a temple because the temple was there in front of them. Church, I want you to look around at the building. Go ahead, you can do it. Feel free. I'm gonna do it too. This is not 
the temple. God does not dwell in this building or on these grounds. There is nothing special, there's nothing more special about a church that meets in a cathedral or a church that meets in a gym or a church that meets outside because the temple has come and been destroyed and been built again in three days in the person of Jesus Christ. We do not need a special building. We do not need a special place. We need the spirit and that is all. And he's given it to us. This is not the temple. Christ is the temple. Christ is the source of worship, the source of God's presence. But lastly, we talked about how it was important at the beginning that this was Passover weekend. This was a time for Jews to think on the past and remember how God had saved them. And they were looking backwards. They were looking in the past They were remembering God's faithfulness. But Jesus, knowing all things, he is promising them a future day, a future Passover. When he is talking about the temple being destroyed and raised in three days, he is talking about a sacrifice that will be made and it will be ultimate. He's thinking of a day just like this one. He looks around and he sees the presence of God being abused by those with religious power and he thinks in the future and there is a day where his body will be broken and abused by those in religious power. There is a Passover coming where Jesus will break bread with his disciples and then he'll be seized, he'll be tortured, and he'll be killed. And the innocent blood that is spilled on that post, that is the cross, will be the means of salvation for everyone. Not just the Jews. Everyone, the curtain that separated that room will be split from top to bottom and we will know that God has come and he is coming after his people. So he was reminded of his home that day at the right hand of the father. He was reminded of the day that will come when he will be broken, but he also knew that what those money lenders were doing in the temple that they would also be doing to him in just a few years time. So church, let us not be like those money lenders. Let us be worshipers, not consumers. Let us not guard this building or this room or these buildings as holy ground and miss the true point of our gathering together, which is the worship of God. Church, we must always remember that Christ indeed was true to his word and he raised up the temple in three days. And in doing so, he made it possible that we could sit here and commune with God. We could be near to him. We can approach his throne and we can hear his voice and he can hear ours because the temple of Christ's body was destroyed and raised. That is how we get to know him. Jesus may not be the savior that we expected. He may be more than gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's more complicated. He may not be the savior that we imagine in our heads or see in in portraits or or picture books, but praise God that we have a savior who cares about his people so much that he will make a whip and he will flip a table and he will run all those out who wish to serve themselves so we might live in harmony together. Because church, there is another day of cleansing coming. He's not done. His work is not finished. There is a day when he will cleanse our home, this earth, 
It'll be filled with God's glory and we will live in harmony side by side with Christ our Lord. He will chase out everything evil, everything bad, all sickness, all death. It will be ran out of the temple. Earth will be the dwelling place. This is our home. And there will be a day when we see our home like we have never seen it before. God will have perfectly cleansed it like he cleansed the temple on this day and on the day of his death. And we won't mind that it doesn't smell the same. We won't mind that it doesn't look the same. We won't mind that our favorite Thai food restaurant isn't there anymore. We won't care. Because all that will matter is that Christ has finally redeemed all things. And that we can together worship him truly, fully, freely. Let's pray. Father God, you are powerful. You have given us much grace. It was not easy. It was not simple, God. It was your plan was hard. But thank God for sending your son and enacting your plan to save us that we might gather together and worship your son. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts when we make this gathering, when we make our worship about ourselves and not about your risen son, our Lord. God, I pray that there are people in this room right now that do not know the greatness of the name of your son and they feel you tugging on their heartstrings, pursuing their hearts just like you cleanse the temple, God, they, that you can enter their story, you can cleanse their hearts and give your righteousness. You can do that. So God, as we sing this next song, I pray that we do it freely. We focus our hearts not on what we like about the music or what we just heard in the sermon or what building looks like or feels like God I pray that we focus on the name of your son and his power and his glory God give us that gift give us that grace focus our hearts let us not be like the money lenders let us be like faithful obedient followers we believe you can do this God in your son's name we pray amen as we sing